Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Hello and welcome to the Starship Sofa. And no, you're not mistaken. These are indeed not the dulcet tones of your regular host, Tony C. Smith. My name is Nicola seaton Clark, and I am hosting this week's show while Tony, the lazy bugger, is sitting somewhere quiet with his feet up, probably sipping a Mai Tai. Actually, no, it's probably a pint. And why this sudden substitution, you ask? Well, it's very simple, really. As you may already know, the District of Wonders is expanding yet again to include a fantasy podcast, Far-Fetched Fables. I'll be hosting the new show and have hijacked this week's Starship Sofa so I can play you some fantastical stories and tempt you over to our new cast like a siren tempting sailors to their doom. Or for the more sci-fi inclined among us, the Emperor and Luke Skywalker. Anyway, enough of that. Let's move on to our first story for the show. It's a classic sword and sorcery tale to make the fantasy fan in you sigh with pleasure. It was written by Aliette de Baudard, one of fantasy's greats. Miss de Baudard lives and works in Paris, where she has a day job as a system engineer. In her spare time, she writes speculative fiction. Her Aztec noir trilogy, Obsidian and Blood, is published by Angry Robot, and her short stories have appeared in markets such as Clark's World magazine, Asimov's, and the year's best science fiction. She has won a Nebula, a Locus, and a British Science Fiction Association Award. Her latest release is the Vietnamese space opera On a Red Station Drifting. Visit aliettebordard.com for more information. My lords, ladies, gentlemen, and otherworldly creatures, I proudly present In the Age of Iron and Ashes by Aliette de Baudard. They ran the girl down in the gray light of dawn, a ring of copper-mailed horsemen racing after her until her exhaustion finally felled her. Yudhyana sat on his horse, shivering in the cold morning air, and thought of home, of the narrow spice-filled streets of Rasamuri and of his daughters shrieking with delight as he raced them in the courtyard. Anything to prevent him from focusing on what was happening. Afterwards, they tied the girl's unconscious body to the saddle of a white mare. Parksman, Yudhyana's second-in-command, nodded at him, waiting for orders. Back to the city, Yudhyana said. His gaze was on the plains, sloping down to the river Kuni, and the cloud of dust that marked the advance of the Sharwa army. He said, 
She didn't have time to reach them. Parchman's face was grim. No, he said. The city is still safe. Yudhyana thought of a thousand, thousand chariots, of gold-harnessed elephants, of a myriad archers, all waiting to topple Rasamuri's walls. Yes, he thought, safe, but for how long? In the evening, the girl woke up, shivering. Yudhyana let Pakshman and his men tie her to a stake in the ground, his mind desperately seeking a way to avoid her, to avoid thinking about the war and what it had made of him. We must make the necessary sacrifices, Priest Marta had said, but Yudhyana knew himself to be weak, knew himself to be suited only for an age of peace and not for the red-hot fury of war. The growing darkness gradually robbed the stunted trees of their color and of their shape until everything was subsumed under the mantle of night. The men's fire sank to embers and the raucous noise of their banter faded. Yudhyana walked in the darkness and found his steps, almost in spite of himself, leading to the girl. He nodded briefly to the soldier who was keeping guard and came to stand over her. In the darkness, her eyes were wide, those of a trapped animal. You had to know you wouldn't reach the Sharwas, he said finally. I tried, didn't I? the girl said. Yudhyana shook his head. Do you know how the Sharwas treat their women? If they hadn't tortured you as a traitor, they would have shut you in a harem, branded you like cattle, and treated you... He paused then, remembering that she was a slave. She laughed a bitter laugh in the darkness. No better than I was treated in Rasamuri, she said. Why should I owe you loyalty? Yudhyana made a short, stabbing gesture in the darkness, longing for the destroyer to walk the earth set right the injustices he was powerless against. They'll kill you for what you've done. They have to set an example. In the darkness, he couldn't see her expression, but he thought she was smiling, a thing utterly leached of joy. Yes, she said, but I have something they want. You? She was a slave, bought from the islands as a child like so many servants of the temple. He could not see what they would want of her. But even as he thought that, another part of him thought of Priest Marna's rage when he had learned of her flight, of his insistence that Yudhyana's whole company go after her. Even if that's true, he said, they'll still kill you. What should it matter to you? Her voice was low, as cutting as the sacrificial knife. I... He stared at the moon above, the eye of the gods on this world the eternal reminder of their protection. He wished it would give him an answer. I don't know. I see. But to me, it doesn't matter. You value your life so little? The girl did not answer for a while. For so long, in fact, that he had started to move back towards the camp. When she spoke, her voice stopped him, as surely as a knife drawn across his throat. Everything lives and dies, she whispered. Everything changes, and all changes end in death. The first lines of the Book of the Destroyer, given by him to mankind, an eternity ago. Yudhyana, thinking of the coming army, the god's ultimate jest, shook his head and went on walking in the darkness. No, he said, that's not true. But deep down, he knew his words to be a lie. 
They reached Ross and Murray on the second morning of their journey. The tall sandstone walls towered over them, carved with the likenesses of the gods, the creator's hands, parting the primordial sea to make the very first forests. The protector in his incarnation as a woman, fighting the king of demons at the foot of Mount Seilesa. The destroyer atop a high cliff, preaching to the multitudes. The girl was imprisoned in a small cell below the fortress, and Yudhyana walked alone to the temple to present his report to the priest Marna. Inside, acolytes were brushing the androgynous statue of the destroyer with clarified butter. The combined smells of rancid fat and stale incense made Yudhyana's head spin. Priest Marna was waiting for him behind the altar, looking more wan and tired than Yudhyana had ever seen him. The yellow thread of his office, crossing his chest at the level of his heart, seemed in the dim light the same sallow shade as his skin. Yudhyana, he said, what news? Yudhyana shrugged. Marna had taken a liking to him for reasons that were a puzzle. Yudhyana himself had never shown any particular love for the priestly caste. The girl is into cells, he said, and because everything about Marna currently grated on his nerves, the army wasn't far behind us. How long? Two days at most. I don't suppose the Raja... Marna shook his head. You forget, he said softly. We are Varam, the favorite of the gods. Raja Irjun wouldn't yield even if he had the assurance everyone would survive. Of course... We are proud people, Yudhyana thought. And for no reason at all, he remembered the girl's bitter smile as she looked upon him. The menial work we leave to the slaves. What do you want with her? he asked. Marna's face did not move. She was a runaway slave. I can't allow discipline to lapse, especially now. Yudhyana shook his head and asked, with an audacity he had not known he possessed, you wouldn't send an entire company to run after a mere slave. Wouldn't I? Marna's face was a mask. Once, Yudana would have nodded and withdrawn, but now the invaders were almost at their gates, and there was no return. He stood his ground and said nothing. Finally, Marna relented. We will make a gesture, he said. Something to show the Charbois that we aren't weak and that to take us will cost them dearly. I don't see what the girl has to do with that. Chandniam Pankala, Marner corrected, absent-mindedly, descended from Ilya, who founded the Order of the Destroyer centuries ago. But she's a slave, Yudhyana said, shocked. Fortunes rise and fall. Marna's face was bleakly amused. It was not clear to whom he referred, whether to the girl or to Rasamuri. But blood, blood never lies. In her veins are the powers of her ancestor. A bitter laugh escaped Yudhyana's lips. <laughs> Magic? What do you expect, that she would kill soldiers with her gaze? With her dance, Marna said, and his voice was utterly serious. The blessed Ilya once dispatched an entire army, it is said. An army of renegade priests, Yudhyana thought, bleakly amused at what Marna wasn't telling him. She's a girl, a slave who's frightened at the thought of death, 
and you tell me stories? Marna said nothing for a while. If it doesn't work, he said, then we will still have shown them how true Varam die. With pride, Yudhyana thought, with our accursed pride. Yudhyana went home, not knowing what else he could do. He found his wife, Apura, in the women's quarters, supervising the servants weaving. She turned, surprised, when the sound of his boots on stone echoed under the vast marble ceilings. I wasn't expecting you so soon. He smiled. It was an easy mission. He went to her and enfolded her in a sandalwood-scented embrace, trying not to think of the girl's slight, shivering form in the moonlight. But I missed you and the girls. They're with their tutors, the poor said. She looked at him for a while. Her eyes, highlighted with coal, appeared even larger in the sunlight. You saw them coming? Bisharwa? He hesitated over, whether to lie to her, but he couldn't. It wasn't that kind of marriage, never had been. They're not far behind. Not much time left. Apura's face had grown distant, as expressionless as cut stone. We could flee, Yudhyana said, feeling ashamed of the thought as soon as he had uttered it. But at least it would keep them alive. Apura shook her head. Even if we did wish that, it's too late. She pulled herself away from him. From behind her came the rhythmic clacking of the looms and the soft swishing sound of cloth spilling from the frame to pile on the floor. The other cities have fallen. Yudhyana said nothing. He wished he had been born in another time, in another place, where people would blossom in peacetime, would delight in each other's presence. Not in this one. Not in this doomed city waiting for its conqueror to take it apart, stone by stone. Apura must have guessed his thoughts. Come, the children will want to see you. But even little Rana's shrieks of delight weren't enough to put the image of the girl out of his mind. A dance, Marna had said. On the very first night of the siege, she'll dance on the battlements to show them we are not afraid. She'll die. In the white shift of dancers, with gold glinting on her arms and on her throat, the glow of torches highlighting the least of her movements, the girl, Chodney, wouldn't last long enough to fulfill whatever dreams Marna had. The enemy would kill her long before her dance was over, and if they did not, then what kind of life could she look forward to, regardless of whether Marna was right? Late at night, as the moon swung over Rasamori, and as the ponderous thud of elephants on the march started to make the city walls shake. Yudhyana found himself awake and unable to sleep. He got up and went to the prisons of the fortress. The girl was in a cell. Two thin chains of silver ran from her ankles to holes in the wall. A necklace of leather encircled her throat with another heavier chain to prevent her escape. As if it would change anything, Yudhyana thought bitterly. Children's tales. There was no magic, a thing that would change their fate. But even as he embraced Rana and Sawani, he knew that they would die, and that he would, too, cut down in the first rush of the invaders. He was a man of peace, not a warrior, and the girl was just a slave, not the terrible magician Marna imagined her to be. 
the guard opened the door for him. The sound of the hinges scraping against the sandstone woke the girl up. She stared at him, her eyes wide in the torchlight. Come to taunt me? she asked. Behind Yudhyana, the guard closed the gate, leaving them both in darkness, as in their first meeting. No, Yudhyana said. I came to talk with you. Her lips compressed to a sliver of flesh. I think we've already said everything we need to say. Yudhyana crouched by her, away from her legs. The desire to strike him ever came into her mind. Do you know why they're keeping you alive? She laughed bitterly. The high priest has already been here. For the dance, of course. That was what you knew? he asked. Perhaps Marta was right, and there could still be a miracle. But no, even if she could dance, even if she could make armies topple, she would strike at Rasamuri first, and he couldn't blame her. What in creation had Marta been thinking of? What he thinks, I know, Chandni corrected. He's mistaken. There is no dance. There are no miracles. That was in some other age of the world, when the gods still walked the earth. She stretched in a tinkle of metal. My family was killed. My sister and I were enslaved. And she died, bearing her master's child. How can you believe Ilya's nine has any power? I don't, Yudhyana said truthfully. But I'm not making the decisions. No, Chani said. She looked at him as if for the first time. You're not one of them. I was born in Rasamuri, Yudhyana said, when the army was still keeping the order within our walls. A long time ago then, Chantney said. You're not a very good soldier. He started. What makes you think that? She smiled. The whole time they hunted me, your mind was elsewhere. She must have seen his shocked face, for she added, The Lion of Ilya has watered down, but some things remain. A shadow what once was. Then there is magic. She shook her head. Not the kind you want. That was lost when the destroyer left this world. I don't think it will ever return. Then you'll die for nothing, he said, more vehemently than he meant to. Her smile in the darkness was terrible, not the destroyer as prophet, but as the beast that would trample the world under its feet. Does anyone ever die for something... You're a good man, not meant for those times. Do we ever choose where we are born? He asked her. She said nothing for a while. Where we are reborn, perhaps. But we all make the best we can with what we have around us. I'm sorry for you. Ay, he began. No one had ever seen that, had ever dissected his weakness with such precision. She smiled again. You mean well, but there's nothing you can do for me. You'd better leave, Yudhyana. Your family will be waiting for you. It was only after he had left her cell that he realized she had called him by his name, but that he had never given it to her. On the following morning, the Sharwa army arrived, with the flame emblem of the true god floating over the silk tents and the rumble of a thousand elephants shaking the walls of the fortress. Yudhyana stood on the highest wall of Rasamuri, with Apura at his side, 
and watched horsemen wheel between the tents, shooting arrows at targets the grace of those born in the saddle. Apura was silent, cradling Sawani in her arms. Now I know there's only one way out. He didn't say anything. There were no words that would have added anything. Nothing that could diminish the truth. They could have run away, like Chandni, but where would they have found refuge? The nearest city was months away, and the army lay between them and the fertile delta. They both knew that the only way was to survive the siege, and they both knew it would be impossible. In the evening, Marna staged his performance. A covered awning hosted the Raja and his wives, and the members of his court shared other smaller constructions, like a reflection of the tents below, Yudhyana thought wryly. He stood by the side of the battlements once again, save that this time there was a stage erected where everyone could see it, and dancers milling on wooden trestles, even as the musicians tuned the strings of their venus. He could not see Chandni, though he had no doubt she would be there, somewhere, sacrificed for the sake of a children's tale, and for Marna's pride. For our pride, he thought. On the stage, Marna was singing the first hymns to the destroyer, his booming voice melding with the sweet tones of the flutes, drums marking the end of each verse, and the grave tones of the vena mingling with the song that was sung. Today we honor the destroyer, who makes and unmakes all things, Marna said, and withdrew, leaving Chandni alone on stage. In the dim light, Yujana could barely see the chains, but they were still there, thin slivers of light that ran from her wrists thin to the ground. They clinked as she moved, slowly at first, swaying to the rhythm of the music, and then faster and faster, a staccato punctuating the beats of her dance. Music rose from the strings of the vena, a soft, plaintive sound that melded with her steps, and she was dancing, leaping upwards like a bird straining to take flight, her arms and legs weaving a pattern that did not belong in this world, dark, terrible, and unspeakable. Arna was smiling, but Yudhyana, standing on the edge of the crowd, saw only the chains holding Chanding fast, and the way they cut each of her leaps short. And in her dance he saw not freedom, not miracles, but the desperation of caged things, unable to free themselves, unable to be the master of their own destinies. This wasn't the age of magic, the age of slaves and follies and overweening pride. His hands clenched into fists and his eyes ached. Unconsciously he found himself moving, pushing his way through the massed crowd. There had to be a way, any way, something he could tell Marna to make this mockery stop. A flash of light arced from the waiting Sharwa army to the battlements, hanging suspended in the air for a short, terrible moment. As Yujan opened his mouth to scream, he found its target. Chagni gasped, her hands pulling at the arrow embedded in her chest. A second one was already arching its way, this time shining with incandescent fire, and falling on the canopy of the Raja's tent. The fragile silk catching it blazed like a funeral pyre. Then everything was confusion. A mass of people bore down on Yudhyana, all seeking to escape. He stubbornly went on fighting his way towards the stage, and the dying dancer, even as screams echoed all around him, 
and the crackle of the fire rose and rose as if to engulf them all. Somehow he made his way to the stage. He was the only one by then. The platform had emptied. Only the Rajah's tent remained, consuming itself in flames. Marna was at the back, screaming for some order that never got imposed, and Yudhyana was alone, kneeling by the body of the dying girl. Chantney, he whispered. He cradled her against him, an instinctive gesture. She stared upwards at the moon that spread its light across the sky, bathing her sweat-covered skin in a white sheen like milk. She was shivering. She did not speak for a while. She smiled at him through the spreading smoke. It's never over, Yudhyana. Don't you see? And then her eyes closed. Her breathing quickened, and she did not speak again. He held her in his arms, heedless of the confusion, of the fire, of the arrows that could have been shot at both of them. He held her, feeling the feverish warmth of her skin on his, until nothing was left. They laid her body in the vault, along with that of the men and women who had died, trampled by the mob. In the city, confusion had followed the burning of the Raja's tent. Raja Arjun himself had been badly scarred by the flames and had withdrawn to his chambers. No one but his closest attendants had seen him or talked to him since the debacle. Marna was still trying to impose order, but everything had spun out of control. Yudhyana went home in silence, remembering the touch Chandni's body on his, and the heady smell of incense and sandalwood, rising to cover that of blood and urine. His house was a mirror of the confusion within the city. Servants roamed the corridors aimlessly, but in the nursery, Apura, always a bulwark of pragmatism, was singing his daughters to sleep. Dark circles underlined her eyes to match the black coal on her eyelids. He waited silently until she was done. The walls still hold. For how long? Apura's voice was bitter. I don't know, he said, and it was the truth. He expected to be called forth any moment, to be told that the army was entering the city, and his heart contracted at the thought. Apura watched him silently. The Rajah has lost control, she said. It's almost the end. There was nothing he could answer. He came closer to her ran his hand down her neck. Her skin was warm, pulsing with her heartbeat. And for a while he felt nothing but that warmth spreading to his hand, to his arm, to his own heart. I'm sorry, he said. Apura disentangled herself from him, gently. It's nothing you did, Yudhyana. He thought of Chandni, lying still in the vault of the destroyer's temple. No. It was what he hadn't done. His hand strayed to his sword at his side, clenched the cold metal hilt. I'll get some sleep, he said. Yes, Pura said. They'll call you soon. In his room, he lay on his bed, staring at the marble ceiling inlaid with malachite and cornoline and precious stones of all colors. It shone like the glistening light of the moon overhead, and the light was the same he had seen in Chandni's eyes before death extinguished it forever. He fell asleep, finally, dreaming of fire, and of Chandni's dance, which wasn't a spell Marna had dreamt of, but simply the desperation of a helpless prisoner, underlying every gesture, 
every clink of the bells. In the darkness, you heard the bells again. One, two, one, two. On and on and on until they melded with the rhythm of his heart. The ground was thrumming with the charge of elephants, and Chandni stood, waiting for him, at the top of the ridge. You're dead, he whispered. She did not move. Her face was turned away from him. Yes, she said. Her voice, too, was deeper than it should have been. But isn't death the beginning of rebirth? No, he said, thinking of Rasamuri, and of the walls that held nothing, that supported nothing. It's the end, Chani. There's nothing beyond. Shh, she said. She turned at last, and he saw that she was wearing the attire of a sacred dancer, the same clothes she had died in. Her feet were already moving, and the sound of the vena hung in the air, hovering on the edge of becoming. This is... this is a dream, he wanted to say, an illusion. I'll wake up and lie in my bed by my useless sword that I wasn't meant to take up. But the words couldn't pass his lips. This is the end of the dance, Chandni whispered, and her back arched, launched into the figures she had been going through before the arrow came out of the darkness and struck her down. The ground shook under his feet, as if the thousand Sharwa elephants accompanied her dance. The sky overhead was dark, quivering with the promise of rain, and still she danced, no longer a slave, but a woman warrior, her chained hands holding spears, her feet parting the earth. Chantney, he wanted to say, stop, but he couldn't. He couldn't speak. He thought, too, that he could not move, but he found that his feet were answering her. And as the drums joined the invisible vena, he was with her, slipping into the invisible gap she wove for him. This is the dance, she whispered. This is the memory of what Ilya left us, the dance that ends the world, so that something else might be built on our ashes, so that we might be but it's not powerful enough, remember? Her laughter was silver, and the sound of thunder over the plains. But it's enough, Yudhyana, it's enough for a small gift. And as she danced, her shape flickered, and she was no longer a woman, but something huge and unspeakable. The vastness between the worlds, the nightmares that stalked the void. She was the beginning of everything, and the end of everything, and the spears in her hands were deep in the ground, and they were the only thing that held the earth together. This wasn't the age of magic, or of miracles. This was the age of overweening pride. This was the age of war, of iron and ashes. He saw the city then, flickering between her outstretched hands. He saw himself running with Apura behind him, a child in his arms, and one on his back and he saw the soldiers that caught him, the spears that slit Sawani's throat, the sword that scattered Rana's brains, Apura writhing beneath men that held her pinned to the ground, screaming in such pain that he could not endure it any more, such pain that what they were doing to him faded into nothingness. No, he whispered, no. But Chani was still dancing, and her dance was the inexorable steps of the siege towers, the vena, the thunder of arrows, and Apura was still screaming, 
and both his daughters were dead, and he... He awoke with a start in his darkened room. The memory of the dance still lay in his mind, and the rumble was still there too, and he knew what it was, even before hearing the cries. The walls were breached. His sword lay by his side, shining in the darkness, and in his mind was the memory of Chandni's voice. Everything that lives must change, and all changes end in death. And death is rebirth. Gently, carefully, his hand closed around the hilt of his sword. He rose and walked into the nursery. Apura was sleeping with Sawani in her arms, and Rana was in her cradle. He knelt gently by their side. I'm sorry, he said, as he had said earlier, knowing that the words were hollow, utterly devoid of meaning. He held Apura's face in his hands, feeling warmth spread to his fingers, a reminder of what could have been. His mind was a blank, still filled with the dance that had ended everything, and his hand did not shake. Better death, sometimes. Blood fountained from her open throat, smearing his blade, staining his hands. He forced himself to think of the dream, of the memory of the army rumbling on towards them and of the walls torn open as easily as children's toys. He turned in silence to his daughters and did what had to be done. Afterwards, he walked outside in the gathering darkness towards the distant sound of battles where the last of Rasamuri's defenders were fighting for something that had been doomed from the start. He held his sword in his hand and the weight of his armor pressed down on him. The light of the moon was cold on his face, on his exposed neck, and in his mind Chantney was still dancing, to the screams of the dying, and the sound of metal on metal, to the smell of smoke, to the smell of ashes spread over an earth that had to be destroyed and cleansed in order to bear seeds. And he knew that in some indefinable, inconceivable way, he would be there when that earth bloomed again. He knew that some part of him would walk among the new flowers and the glimmering trees with Apura and Sawani and Rana in an age of peace, an age of sunlight, an age of soft breezes and restful dreams, the age he had been made for. For nothing truly ever ended. So, are you sniffling? Are your eyes filling up? What a beautiful story, so tragic, so noble. It was read for us by one of our assistant editors, Stephen Howell. After retiring from military service in 2013, Steve began working towards an MFA in creative writing at the University of Tampa. He writes short stories and is working on his first novel. Steve also serves as a slush reader for the Tampa Review Online, and assistant editor and occasional narrator for the growing collection of genre fiction podcasts here at District of Wonders. He lives in Florida with his wife, two sons, and one hyperactive dog. As usual on the Starship Sova, we have a fact article for you. Today, most appropriately, it is a look back at genre history, fantasy. 
Amy H. Sturgis has done her usual marvellous job, so here goes. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. To help celebrate the launch of a brand new podcast, Tony C. Smith asked me if I would be willing to contribute a very special looking back into genre history, and of course my answer was yes. So today I would like to offer you a list of five forgotten or overlooked or under-the-radar classics of fantasy that you shouldn't miss. So let's get started, shall we? For my first on the list, let's go back to 1811, to the Baron de la Motte Fouquet. Now, I'm unashamedly a fan of Fouquet's work. I edited the first scholarly edition in English, and in fact, the first edition in English, period, in over a century, of his great novel, The Magic Ring, which is something of an ancestor to J.R.R. Tolkien's the Lord of the Rings. But that's not what I want to talk to you about today. Today I want to talk to you about Fouquet's 1811 dark fairy story Undine, which was a reworking of a classic legend, and it gained him tremendous acclaim during his lifetime. The title character is a water nymph who marries a mortal in order to gain a soul, but eventually she's forced by her husband's faithlessness to kill him. Contemporary literary giants such as Johann Wolfgang von Goethe and Sir Walter Scott praised the work highly, and the tale motivated E.T.A. Hoffman to write the opera Undine, for which Fouquet wrote the libretto, and it debuted in 1816 at the Royal Theatre in Berlin. Undine also inspired later creations from ballet to fiction to Disney's The Little Mermaid, perhaps most notably a romantic opera by Albert Lortzing and several of British artist Arthur Rackham's most famous illustrations. Undine not only impressed Fouquet's German peers, but it also proved to have remarkable staying power. In 1839, in his review of an English translation of Undine for Burton's Gentleman's Magazine, Edgar Allan Poe praised the author and the tale, and added that, quote, the whole wide range of fictitious literature embraces nothing comparable in loftiness of conception or in felicity of execution to those final passages of the volume. Nearly a century later, H.P. Lovecraft, in his essay Supernatural Horror in Literature, confirmed Undine's position as a German classic and named it the most artistic of all continental weird tales. Whether or not you've seen Disney's The Little Mermaid, you owe it to yourself to read Fouquet's darker, more tragic work. An English translation is available at Project Gutenberg online. My second choice dates to 1858 and can also be found on Project Gutenberg online. Written by an early giant in modern fantasy, it is strongly influenced by German Romanticism, and in fact it quotes Baron de Lamotte Fouquet at the beginning of one of the chapters. It is alternately pronounced fantasties or fantasies, depending on who you talk to, and it was written by George MacDonald. 
Its beginning is irresistible. A young man finds a key to an old oak secretary in a secret library in a house that sits at the edge of things. He opens the secretary door and discovers what seems to be a false panel on the back wall with a hidden pin that locks it in place. He shifts the pin and pulls out the panel and, well, you'll have to read it to see what happens. It's beautiful, it's creepy, and it could blow your mind. It did blow the mind of 16-year-old C.S. Lewis. Years later, he wrote, I had not the faintest notion what I had let myself in for by buying this book. This classic by the Scottish George MacDonald is also available as an unabridged audiobook free from LibriVox.org. For my next under-the-radar must-read fantasy work, let's go to 1897, the year that Bram Stoker published Dracula. But that year, if you had asked the common reader in London exactly where to find that best-selling novel, they wouldn't know what you were talking about. They would say, Dracula what? Dracula who? Because that year it was mightily outsold by a much more popular fantasy novel, The Beetle, by British author Richard Marsh. Well, his name wasn't really Richard Marsh. Richard Marsh was his pseudonym. His real name was Richard Bernard Heldman. Over the years, the reputation of Dracula has quite rightfully escalated. But at the same time, the reputation of the Beetle has quite unfairly diminished. The Beetle is a great example of that late Victorian, fendisiacal, gothic novel. It's a story of a fantastical creature born neither of God nor man, with supernatural and hypnotic powers, the ability to shapeshift as well. It stalks British politician Paul Lessingham through London in search of vengeance because of the defilement of a sacred tomb in Egypt. So you have that fascination with Egyptology on top of everything else. It fits into the category of the sort of imperial Gothic, which represented fears of the repressed coming back to become the repressor. And it's a fascinating story that really has a lot of modern content. There's the mystery thriller angle, there's radical politics, there's cross-dressing and homosexuality, there's science, there's social commentary. Fascinating stuff. The Beetle by Richard Marsh is also available online at Project Gutenberg and in audiobook form at LibriVox.org. If you're looking for a good academic critical edition, Broadview Press put out a particularly good version in 2004. The next novel I'd like to mention is Lud in the Mist from 1926 by Hope Mirlis. It was published again in 1970 as part of the Ballantine Adult Fantasy series without the permission of the author. It seems the editors assumed she was dead. She wasn't. She had just inherited a fortune from her father and stopped writing. It was later published again in 2005 from Cold Spring Press with a foreword by Neil Gaiman and an introduction by Douglas A. Anderson. 
Gaiman has called it one of the finest fantasy novels in the English language, a little golden miracle of a book. And he credits it as one of his top ten favorite books of all time. It's the story of the rational, law-abiding inhabitants of Ludin the Mist, which is located at the confluence of the rivers Dapple and Dahl in the fictional state of Doromere, who live alongside the bordering land of Fairy with its fantastic inhabitants. The inhabitants of Ludin the Mist have tried to banish everything related to Fairy from their lives, but this proves futile, and their mayor, the respectable Nathaniel Chanticleer, finds himself having to reconcile these two peoples and their ways of life. Upon its original publication, critics named the author a genius, and Virginia Woolf called her rather an exquisite apparition. And Neil Gaiman isn't the only contemporary author who praises the way that the novel portrays both the attraction and the danger of fairyland. Tim Powers, for example, is known to foist the book on others as a must-read. Now let's skip over the pond from the UK to the US for my last entry in this list, and perhaps the most under the radar, I'd like to recommend an unfinished novella by the great U.S. author Mark Twain. It wasn't published during his lifetime. In fact, it didn't see daylight until it became part of the formerly suppressed Letters from the Earth. And that's the best place to find it now. Now, between you and me, I fully recognize and appreciate Twain's genius and his insights into the human condition. But from an aesthetic standpoint, I prefer my work a little darker and a little bleaker in tone as well as in insight, although certainly Twain had some, uh, some cynicism and some good old-fashioned reservations about his fellow humans, and I certainly appreciate that. But, uh, but you know, my taste runs to bleak. Well, let me tell you that his unfinished novella, The Great Dark, it reads a bit like uh, Mark Twain spent a long afternoon with H.P. Lovecraft, and that, to my perspective, is all to the good. A man tests out the microscope that he's bought for his daughter, looking into a drop of water, and he sees what looks to him like monsters. He then falls asleep and dreams of a life in that wild universe compressed in the one drop of water. He believes, during his dream, that his real past life is what was a dream, and that his dream is a reality. When he wakes up, he believes that his waking life is still a dream. As Chad Roman has written in his essay, A Great Dark, Mark Twain's Continuing Voyage into Uncertainty, and I quote, In this dark fable, Twain intimately, complexly, humorously, and disturbingly recreates his most commonly used skeptical stance, the seeker after knowledge under difficulties, a motif and character type that appears in some of his earliest sketches, comprised of a storyline that is consumed by perpetual night and which dwells in a pervasive fog, the Great Dark is one of Twain's most serious and sustained, yet uncertain, investigations of truth. Good stuff. 
I recommend this, and for that matter, all of Letters from Earth, Uncensored Writings, by Mark Twain. I hope I've managed to discuss at least one or two works with which you're not familiar or which you haven't read, and I'd invite you to look those up, and I hope that you enjoy them. There's a lot out there in the world of fantasy to explore and enjoy, and I'm excited to see and hear this podcast as it leads us on a journey into the genre. Thank you. Once again, she's done us proud. Thanks, Amy. Without further ado, let's move on to our next piece. Since I really didn't want to make you all cry into your coffee, or glass of wine, depending on which time zone you're listening from, I decided that for our next story, we should have something a bit more whimsical. This story, entitled A Hard Truth About Waste Management, was written by Sumanth Prabhaka. Sumanth is the founding editor of the Madras Press, a charitable publisher of short fiction, whose titles include work by Donald Bartholomew, Amy Bender, Kelly Link and Ben Marcus. And you can find them at madraspress.com. Take a listen and see what you think. The family liked so much to flush their trash down the toilet that they sold their TV and used the money to buy three chairs to arrange in their upstairs restroom. This was a time when trash flushing was not an uncommon practice, but even then this particular family's enjoyment was rare. Where most families who resorted to trash flushing were ashamed of their behavior, this family looked forward to the sight of their trash bins filling up. They would recline in their three chairs and watch their trash get sucked down into the hole at the bottom of the toilet, which had a permanent black ring smeared around it, and they would cheer and punch their fists together. None of the three chairs in the restroom matched in size or color. The family had driven to the shopping mall and split up, and one hour later each member returned to the parking lot, carrying a chair that cost roughly one-third of the price the pawn shop had paid for the TV. The father's chair was upholstered with a brown polyester finish and had an electrical cord emerging from the back. When he plugged his chair into the restroom wall and sat in it, he would feel small vibrations all over his shoulders and even around his knees, and he would wonder how he would ever manage to leave such a comfortable chair. The mother's chair was more like a swing than a chair. It hung from the ceiling like a swing, and it swung like a swing, but it was very comfortable as well. The cushion was made of a mixture of gelatin and polycarbonate, so every time she sat down, it would shift around to make space for her, like a mold. The mother loved her mold cushion, because she often carried a portable whiteboard in her pocket, which made her pants stick out in directions most normal cushions couldn't accommodate. She used the whiteboard to communicate with others, having lost the ability to speak as a child. The son's chair was made of gingerbread, graham crackers, gumdrops, licorice ropes, jawbreakers, chocolate bars, bubblegum sticks, candied fruit, lollipops, 
and suckers, nougats, caramel cream cubes, honey-roasted cashews, peanut butter cups, and a long, crunchy board that tasted alternately like balsa wood and brittle. The cushion was cotton candy. The chair was covered in hairs and strings of dust and all kinds of sticky papers, but the son did not mind. He sat in his chair every day, and every day he would pick off little bits to eat while he watched loads of trash sink down the toilet and occasionally used the extendo plunger to unclog the drain without having to get up. At first the family had simply tried to cut down on their waste by recycling. They used banana peels as fertilizer and plastic wrap as kindling, which turned the fires in the fireplace a blue-green hue they liked especially to make s'mores over. The mother used hot glue to string together small wreaths from the trash that accrued naturally in their home. She also tried cooking the pieces of paper they used to throw away. For herself, she shredded newspaper and stirred it into carrot stews. For the father, she deep-fried old post-it notes and spread borsin cheese over them to hide their messages. For the son, she made a crude chewing gum by churning tampon boxes and corn syrup, but he never chewed it, preferring instead to saturate his graded homework assignments in simple syrup and butter and crumple the sheets into balls that he would freeze and later eat for a snack on hot afternoons. The father finally put this diet to a stop when he found a Christmas card stuck inside a leftover flan. He called a family meeting that night. "'I'm putting this diet to a stop,' he said. "'It's not our choice,' the son said. "'He's right,' the mother wrote. "'Trash has to go somewhere.' "'I don't care. "'We'll do what we have to do, "'but there's no more eating of trash in this home. "'This is lower than dogs,' the father said, "'holding up the Christmas card on his fork. "'The family looked helplessly at one another. "'There was too much trash, they knew, "'and not enough space for it in their home.' but they couldn't keep up with the rising price of the city garbage stickers. Staring down at his feet, the son confessed a habit he'd picked up from his friends at school. Sometimes, he said, when I can't finish my lunch, I flush it down the toilet. He showed his parents how he would empty his paper bag into the toilet and how easily its contents were taken away from him. The mother cried in silence. I don't know where it goes to, the son said. "'But it's free.' "'You've saved us a lot of grief,' the father said. "'I'm proud of you, even if you don't like my sandwiches,' the mother wrote, wiping at her tears. The family began trash-flushing the next day. They were the first in the city to try it on such a large scale. They gathered uneaten food and grocery bags and the bag from inside the vacuum cleaner when it got full, and they piled everything up on the rim of the toilet.' The son pressed the flusher and watched the trash spin around in a circle, and then slowly lower. "'Look at it spin,' the mother wrote. Trash flushing soon became a habit for the family. When they no longer needed something, they went into the toilet, and immediately it was taken away. They felt this process bore an uncanny resemblance to the way their bodies functioned, which made it vaguely Native American feeling to them. To keep the water bill from going up, the family used public restrooms when they could, and they agreed to flush their trash only twice a day, once at four o'clock and once at ten. 
This way they had something to anticipate all afternoon and all evening, and they could share in the flushing together, which only seemed appropriate to them. The four o'clock flush was the louder of the two. This was partly because the afternoons tended to collect the louder sort of trash, such as cardboard slats and empty cans of hairspray, and partly it was because the family had been thinking of nothing but this four o'clock flush all day, and so they cheered rather loudly for it. They cheered when trash piled up too high, and they had to steer it with brooms to keep from tipping over. They cheered when the mother got sick from the combination of trash smell and lavender glade plug-in, and she leaned forward and vomited into the toilet bowl. She cheered this as well, clapping along with her son and husband, and they cheered when the toilet shook and made a wet belching sound after sucking down the afternoon's trash, and a small gray animal popped out from the toilet and landed on the bath mat. The animal shivered as the family cheered it on. It shook its leathery skin and curled around the graham cracker leg of the son's chair. After much consideration, the animal was decided to be a male cat. He was named Bleachy, after the way he smelled. "'You're better than anything we put into the toilet,' the son told Bleachy, scratching the back of his leathery neck. When the family took Bleachy on walks around the neighborhood, other families stared and pointed at them. Trash flushing had grown more widespread by then, due to the steep price of garbage tickets, but no other family bragged about it the way this particular family bragged about it. They outlined all the grease stains on their T-shirts with magic marker, and group hugged every time Bleachy coughed up a ball of their old trash. This was something Bleachy did very often, so the family trained him to cough into the toilet when he needed to. But Bleachy soon grew to be emotionally needy in ways the family couldn't satisfy. He ate all their food and cried all night. He constantly napped in the father's massage chair, which caused the electric pill to go up, because he never remembered to turn the massage function off. He even borrowed the son's sweaters without asking, which stretched them in strange shapes as he grew larger and longer. It was a relief, then, when the son returned home from school one afternoon to find no trace of Bleachy in the front yard. None of his shoes appeared to have been eaten while he was away. Upstairs, his mother swayed from her chair in the restroom. Her face was flushed. "'I've done a terrible thing,' she wrote. "'I flushed Bleachy back down.' "'Well, he was very codependent,' said the son, trying to hide his tears. I guess he was also too big for a cat. It was so strange, the mother wrote. He said he missed his home. He asked me to flush him back down, but now I think the toilet broke. The son pressed the flusher and it flipped down carelessly, with no friction or resistance. The extendo plunger didn't help, nor did the ultrasonic air hammer plunger, which the family reserved for emergencies. The son stared at his mother's reflection in the mirror, wondering how to lie to his father. "'The bathroom smells so bad,' the mother wrote when the father came home from work that day. "'It's probably toxic,' the son said. "'None of us should go in for a few days, at least. "'Also, Bleachy got hit by a car. "'We had a funeral while you were at work.' "'Well, these things happen,' the father said trying to hide his tears. 
I guess it's a shame about the bathroom. The father liked his brown vibrating chair and how it felt like small voices against his back. And he had loved Bleachy as much as anyone, but more than either of these he valued his family's safety. By dinner time that night, he had locked the restroom door and stuffed towels in the cracks, except where in the corner under the hinges he had inserted a flexible rubber tube to occasionally check the air inside. The door remained locked for eleven days. When finally the father agreed to venture into the restroom again, the family's trash bins were concealed under triangles of trash. Spiderwebs netted the hallways, and maggots took up the fridge's crisper drawers. The family had dug a small outhouse in their backyard while the restroom was indisposed, a four-foot hole covered by the son's Batman tent. Two neighbors had already moved away because of what the family's reputation had done to the subdivision's property value. A third had moved over the past week, seeing the family's trash pile up so fiercely against the living room window that the glass fractured and leaked out an oily substance. The father first strapped dental masks on all three of them. He then opened the door two inches and released a finch tied to his wrist and shut the door. He counted to twenty and opened the door again, tugging his wrist back. The other end of the string had only the finch's foot attached to it. The son shrugged and opened the door. Inside, lying across the counter, was a gray crocodile wearing a tan sweater. Bleachy, the mother wrote. Dang it, the father said. I knew you weren't a cat, the son said. The mother stared at the wet pencil shavings littered along the crocodile's skin and tried to understand. I got stuck halfway, Bleachy said. I had to come back up or I would drown. I'm sorry, the mother wrote. I understand how you feel. Bleachy lurched forward and locked his jaws around her throat and pulled up, dislodging her head. The son ran downstairs, listening from under a pile of kitchen trash, as his father screamed, and then gurgled, and then fell silent. The son eventually fell asleep, still wearing his oxygen mask. He dreamed of stepping on dry leaves, when actually his brain was trying to warn him that Bleachy was munching his way toward the sun. When Bleachy had eaten all the trash in the corner, he rested his nose on the son's knee. The son awoke with a gasp. Don't worry, Bleachy said. I'm not going to kill you. Please don't kill me, the son said. Listen to me, Bleachy said. I'm not going to kill you. You've made some poor choices, but you're young. You still have time to change. Where's my dad? the son asked. How would you like it if there was a big tube that poured someone else's trash on your house? Bleachy said. How would you like it if I took you away and made you cough in my toilet? Bleachy placed his teeth around the son's calf and bit down until he felt the bone underneath. The son cried out, looking at the new holes in his leg. His eyes cracked like crayon. The jaws came unclamped without a sound, and Bleachy turned and crawled away, out of the house, still wearing the son's tan sweater. Filled with a feeling that was almost sorrow, Bleachy lifted his long gray head and breathed in deep, hoping to find a scent that would remind him 
of home. I have to smile whenever I hear that story. I just love the different chairs. Wish I had one like the sun's. Mm. The story was most capably read for you by Mark Kilfoyle. Mark, the encaffeinated one Kilfoyle, loves fiction. So much so that he's written some, such as the Parsec-nominated Tainted Roses, read quite a lot, a library of over a thousand half-read books and growing, and now narrates them, sometimes actually recorded for others. He's found that volunteering for a dozen years in radio was a decent way to get a full-time job as a program director at a community radio station in Fredericton, New Brunswick, Canada, but not such a great way to finish his thesis. So he stopped at a master's in computer science. He can be heard frequently on chsrfm.ca, and two of his shows regularly appear as podcasts, and can be found at encaffeinated.ca and theweirdshow.com. He likes cats enough to pet them, but not enough to own one, and computers enough to own several, but pet none of them. He will someday write a million words, but at this rate, that will require life extension, so he eagerly awaits the ability to upload into a computer, if that hasn't already happened and this is all only a simulation. You can, of course, also click on his links on the Triple F website for more details. And that just about wraps it up for this special fantasy edition of the Starship Sofa. Hardcore sci-fi fans, I hope you enjoyed our stories today and have perhaps been persuaded to click on over to Farfetched Fables and subscribe to that, too. For those of you wonderful people out there who enjoy all kinds of fantasy and speculative fiction, welcome to the fold. Visit the District of Wonders next week, Tuesday 22nd of April, and every Tuesday thereafter. We'll be there. Visit the site, share, subscribe, like our Facebook page, Write us a review on iTunes or simply let your friends know that there is a new source of fantasy out there. Come on in, pour yourself a drink, and enjoy. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.wonders.com districtofwonders.com Thank you for listening.